Good morning. Welcome, welcome. We are going to be reading from Genesis 47, starting at verse 28. I'll let you find that. Let's pray together. God, as a community, we gather here in front of you, and we confess that we are inadequate. We can't look up. We, uh, we offer filthy rags, as that's our best righteousness. That's the most uh, we can muster on our own. And Lord, it is a, a depraved state. But we acknowledge the joy of knowing Jesus uh, gives us new clothes. In Christ, we have joy and hope and all sufficiency. We come to you uh, offering what you have given to us. Blessings of knowing you. And Lord, in this community, I pray that we would support one another. Because uh, it, is, it is still tough uh, walking around uh, this life. We have emptiness and loneliness. Uh, we have longings that really only heaven is meant to fulfill uh, relationship with you. And yet we struggle with our sins. And we lift those uh, to you to be cleansed and taken away. Lord, as a community where we do not re represent you well, uh, we confess that too. Lord, it is our deep prayer uh, that we would be uh, uniting with one another in ways that uh, build up the body, that raise up your name and give you glory. Lord, I pray that we would make community that, um, that bears burdens and, uh, and loves through the hardships of this life. And Lord, as the little people have left this room, we pray that this would be a safe and loving place for them to grow. Lord, that we would not communicate with them with, with anything but uh, love and simplicity, that we would not be sarcastic or duplicitous, that all they would know uh, in this community would be uh, the goodness of you. Lord, would you nourish them? Would you nourish us as we feed upon this word, this good and sweet honey that you have provided for us today? We want to give you glory, Lord, because of Christ and his wondrous work through life, death, and his resurrection. Amen. All right. Genesis 47, verses 28 and through uh, chapter 48. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now if I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to kindly deal to deal with me kindly and truly. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in the place, in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. 
And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give you this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Paddan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. When there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, these are my sons whom God has given to me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and he brought them near. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is firstborn, put your hand, right hand, on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall also be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will be pronounced blessings, saying God will make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die. 
but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. May God bless the reading of his word. Good morning. It's been a pleasure to worship with you already this morning. And let's continue to worship God as we give the greatest respect to his word by which he has revealed his character in our situation. We are in the conclusion of Genesis. And after the climax and central message of Genesis 45, 1 to 8, Uh, the conclusion is then divided into two major themes. And in the last two weeks, we have looked at the first, which has shown God's provision and protection, granting Israel a place in Egypt. There was a focus on new life. Joseph is reunited with his father, and the family is fed, and there are sons, and there are daughters, and it talks about Israel uh, multiplying Now in the remaining three chapters of Genesis, it is all about death. Actually, two and a half chapters are about Jacob's death. And then there's one final reminder of the major theme of the Joseph narrative. And then just just enough about Joseph's death to basically understand that he followed the example and faith of his father. So we have two and a half full chapters just about the death of Jacob, and then just a handful of verses to show that Joseph really followed in the same passage, uh, same way as his father. And uh, it, this is all very drawn out. The, the length of these chapters, in conjunction with ac- how little actually takes place in the narrative, in, in our minds, we might automatically assess these as less important passages. You know, you get into this final part, and it starts to move very slowly. Two and a half chapters about someone dying. Uh, But the opposite is true. The author intentionally slows these last narratives down to the extreme in order to show just how important these things are. And so when the biblical author wants to show you that this is something worth investing time thinking about and meditating on, he extends the writing so that we literally... Uh, three chapters about death. Why would we contemplate this so heavily? The, the death of Jacob has also been very thoroughly foreshadowed in Genesis with nine mentions anticipating it before now. So it's been a, a major theme of the Joseph narrative that we keep on getting these mentions about the impending death of Jacob. And so we already expect the section to end with Jacob's death But this final theme of death is laden with hope, and that is why it is here. It's full of hope. The passage is fully about the faith of the patriarch who was about to die without having actually received the promises in his life, but who had learned in his lifetime about the ways of God and so entrusted himself to him. Due to time constraints, I thought three hours of lectures would be fine this morning. My wife said no, so you can thank her. Uh, we are forced to handle the death of Jacob in two chunks. So, um, they really are one literary movement. Jacob first gives Joseph instructions about his burial, and then he blesses Joseph, 
And then next week we'll look at the second half, which is in reverse order. Jacob blesses all 12 of his sons, and then he gives all 12 of his sons directions regarding his burial. So it's a chiastic structure for those of you who know what it is. On one, both sides, he is giving instructions for his burial, and then the two middle sections are him blessing the two different groups that he gives instructions to. Both of these acts, these two acts, the burial preparation and the blessing of his children are radical acts of faith produced by the faithfulness of God revealed to Jacob. Because it has been revealed to Jacob that the promise of God will find its fulfillment in the land of Canaan. And so both of Jacob's final actions are finally in harmony with the will of God. Finally, true God-given wisdom in the one who has so often played the fool. Now Jacob knows that the promise of God does not depend on human descriptions of success or even on the survival of the recipients. The promised blessing depends only on the faithfulness of God. We'll reread 20 to 31. Chapter 47, 28 to 31. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do it as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. As I said, the previous passages have all dealt with life in Egypt. Through the obedient and wise Joseph, God provided for his people in the land. Verse 27, they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God had granted them covenant-type blessings in Egypt as a a sort of mini-fulfillment of the promises that would only be fulfilled in a greater way upon the return to the land of Canaan. All the good things in this life are shadows of things to come. Each one meant to point us to the full goodness of God. So in Egypt, they had good things at the beginning. We see this They're fruitful and they're multiplied, but it's not the final fulfillment. It's just to point them to what they would later receive. And even now, look forward to receiving according to Hebrews, where they wait with us for the final fulfillment of peace in the land. Rest where God dwells with his people. And so there's this temporary goodness, but Jacob does not put himself in this place He's already put himself in his mind in the future place, the land that he looks forward to. Jacob knows that there's going to be no permanent residence in Egypt for his people. Egypt is to Jacob and his family what the ark was to Noah, a temporary shelter from the disaster on the outside. And so knowing that the fulfillment of the promise was in Canaan, not Egypt, Jacob emphatically insists that he will be a part of that redemptive act of God. He knows that he's not going to be alive when they go, so he's like, take me there. 
I will be dead, but when I'm dead, take me there. There's this hope. He might not understand exactly what life after death looks like, but he's got this hope that is beyond this life, even now. He knows that he is a child of the promise. And he will not allow any of the attractions of Egypt to distract himself or his family from the plan of God which has been revealed for them. And so he won't be seduced in Egypt. He will be in Egypt, but not of Egypt, John 17, 16. He can wait. He has waited a lifetime already. Now he can wait even in the time of his death. You know, so we, we live in a now generation, which cannot wait. In the absence of faith-filled patience, we are more open to seduction, more likely to be turned to the attractions this world has to offer, the allure of Egypt. Faithful waiting, writes Walter Brueggemann, even beyond a lifetime, provides standing ground for the true promise against all the false narratives. We can wait because our God is faithful. Mature faith does not, indeed it cannot, lose sight of the promise, especially a promise like ours and Jacob's, which extends beyond the boundaries of this life. So even in his life, rather than to settle in Egypt, Jacob says, take me there. We also see here that the ages of Jacob and in the previous passage, his forefathers have all been carefully recorded. As is the detail that Jacob lived with Joseph for 17 years in Egypt here. And so we are meant to see that the final narrative of Jacob's life is bookended on either end, first by 17 years of Joseph's life in his care, and then the final 17 years he spent in Joseph's care. So we've got 17 years on either end of Jacob's life that are set out this way. And then, and it might take a mathematician to appreciate this, so if, you, if this doesn't mean anything to you, don't worry about it. But the carefully recorded ages of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all follow a distinct mathematical pattern when reduced to their factors. And so each, Abraham has, has five times five factors, Isaac has six times six factors, Jacob has seven times seven factors, and the sum of each of their factors is 17. So all of their ages, in a sense, add up to 17, and 17 is on either end of Jacob's life, and, and the author is careful to record this. And so the point of including these items is to help the listening community to understand that Jacob's life was not concocted according to a series of haphazard events, but was ordered according to God's grand design. And then in several ways, this brief conversation with Joseph marks the beginning of Joseph passing his authority and rank as the tribal chieftain over to Joseph. And so typically, the head of the clan was responsible for the funeral and for the continued care of the deceased. And so the delegation of this duty to Joseph indicates a commissioning to leadership. And Jacob also uses deferential language addressing Joseph as a servant would his master if I have found favor in your sight. And, and finally, the dream of Genesis 37 is fulfilled here. It's, we've seen little fulfillments all the way, but this is now when Jacob finally bows 
to Joseph as Joseph saw in the dream. And though he is too feeble to bow to the ground, he bows himself upon the head of his bed in a symbolic gesture of prostration. And so he makes himself Joseph's servant here at the end. It's because Jacob cannot compel Joseph to do what he asks because he's going to be dead. (laughs) He will lose his ability to decide. Uh, But the desired outcome is so serious, so important to Jacob, because by faith he stakes his destiny in the promised land, and so he requires Joseph to swear an oath in in a manner which I'm quite glad has become outdated, Uh, that he would show him kindness, that is chesed, covenant loyalty, and faithfulness by burying him according to the covenant promises. And these oaths gave Jacob the assurance he desired for this sort of swearing was done with radical seriousness. Chapter 48, verse 1. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make you a company of peoples, and I will give this land to your offspring for you, after you, sorry, for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you have fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way when I was still some distance to go to Ephrath. I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. The remainder of this chapter is divided into two rituals. After this preamble, which we've just read, is an adoption ceremony in verses 8 to 12. And then Jacob will bless Joseph with a double portion due to a firstborn son by blessing his two sons as his own. And Jacob begins here then by outlining the past blessings that he had received in order to develop confidence for the future in this next generation. And so we're talking about the two acts of Jacob in his death. They're both repeated. But you need to see here right away, Jacob is concerned about his own situation, that his hope is in the land yet to come. And then he sets an example for his sons that their hope is in the land yet to come. In the next chapter, Jacob will lay out the inheritance of his sons. And I want to draw that in just a little bit here as we talk about it this morning because the inheritance that he sets forth before them and at the end of this chapter for Joseph is in the land. It's not in Egypt. And so in both ways, Jacob is faithful to God but also just acting in wisdom because God has said where they will end up and so he, his treasure is there. He wants his bones to be there. He wants to send his sons there. And so he begins to bless his sons in a way that sets them looking to the future for the land that will be theirs eternally. I want to immediately start applying this to us as parents and as those who are discipling others. But we we see that 
even if our hope is in the future that we will enjoy for eternity with God, we have to start to send the next generation in that same direction. It's so easy to start to point to the things of this life and the things that we'd like to accomplish in this life. I'm getting ahead of myself. Jacob begins by outlining his blessings so that the next generation will know that these blessings are for them. These are the promises that were repeated so many times by God to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which were for them and all of their offspring, which Romans 4.16 says would include all those who come to share the faith of Abraham by God's merciful gift. So this is our promise as well, church. And so Jacob does not say, let me tell you what God did for me, but rather he implies Let me tell you about our God and the precious promises he made for you and for the family and our families' families and from people from all the families of the world, Genesis 12, 3. The repetition of Jacob's encounter with God in Canaan with the assurance of an everlasting possession in the land of promise is a striking contrast to the Egyptians who in the last passage had just lost their lands, And though Israel has just been awarded lands in Egypt by Pharaoh, these temporary holdings are but a foretaste of what God will do for them in Canaan. And then having recited God's past blessings, Jacob now prepares to formally pass them on to his grandsons. But first he's going to claim them as his own heirs, saying, verse 5, Your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. Now, these two sons, Reuben and Simeon, are being singled out because they are Jacob's firstborn and secondborn, and yet they will be bypassed to give the birthright and double portion due to a firstborn son to Joseph. But to give these blessings to Joseph, Jacob raises Ephraim and Manasseh, his sons, to the status of firstborn sons of Jacob. Then he, in verse 6, asserts that Joseph's other children will be considered his, but they will be heirs of Ephraim and Manasseh and belong to their tribes. So all of Jacob's other, or Joseph's other children would belong to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so there's no tribe called Joseph in the Bible, no Josephites in Israel, because there are two Joseph tribes as Joseph received the double blessing. And so of the 12 tribes of Israel, two of them are Joseph tribes. And there's actually 13 names as of the tribes of Israel. Uh, but Levi has no land, and so there's 12 tribes, and then Le- the Levites are scattered among them. We'll get to that. And then in verse 7, Jacob recalls the death of Joseph's mother, Joseph and Benjamin's mother, his beloved wife, Rachel. And probably Jacob thinks of this adoption of Joseph's sons as increasing Rachel's offspring to four, though she has already died. So through these children... The once barren woman who received the promise of God becomes the mother of three prolific tribes. Three of the tribes that would uh, really grow become the tribes that came from Rachel. After the preamble and the explanation, the ritual begins in earnest in verse 8. And this is why it seems like Joseph doesn't know who these kids are. It's like any kind of ritual. Who, you know, who gives this woman to, to be a, the bride? We have these sorts of rituals. So Israel saw Joseph's sons, and he said, Who's, who are these? So this is the beginning of the ritual. 
Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given to me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Now we've seen this ancient adoption ritual already with Sarah as she intends to adopt Ishmael, who was born to Hagar, this ritual includes placing Joseph's sons on Jacob's knees, symbolizing his giving them birth in the place of their mother. And so this was the ancient ritual. They would take the, the, usually not a child, believe it or not. Adoptions were almost always adults. And actually, in this case, if the timing is correct here, these are almost 20-year-old sons. But they place them on the knees as though he is birthing them, and this is how they would do an adoption. Like his father before him, Jacob has failing eyesight in his later years, but unlike his father, and this is so hopeful, Jacob's losing his eyesight, but his insight has only sharpened. God, I pray for this. Even as our minds and our eyes are failing, sharpen our faith. Reveal to us your promise. May we live faithfully. It is at the end of his life that he sees God's plan at work most clearly. It is when he entrusts himself to it most fully. Though his eyesight has failed, he gets to see, quote-unquote, both his lost son and his offspring also. And even as his physical eyesight is failing, his spiritual sight has come alive. And at 147 years, Jacob and his long-deceased and barren wife begin to see the fruitfulness God had promised to them. Once the adoption is complete and the new firstborn sons are figuratively rebirthed, Joseph removes his sons from Jacob's knees and then the blessing ritual begins. Verse 13. So now that they're sons... Joseph or Jacob can bless them, give them the, the blessing of the firstborn, which is intended for Joseph. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph, you see this, he blesses Joseph by laying hands on these two sons, and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the hand of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, 
By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So to get, get the picture of this, Joseph is very carefully assisting his vision-impaired father by presenting Ephraim, the second-born, before Jacob's left hand, the, the lesser blessing, and Manasseh, the first-born, before Jacob's right hand. And in this way, Joseph thinks the important right hand of blessing will be placed on Manasseh, and the, the less important left hand of blessing will be placed on Ephraim. But despite all this careful stage managing of the ritual, Joseph notices that something has gone awry. Something has gone so wrong that he has to interrupt the ceremony. It would be like, and, and I would not put this past me, it would be like using the wrong name in a baptism or a baby dedication. Someone just needs to step up and interrupt and say, hey, we've got to get this name right. You're calling this person. My fear is to do it at a wedding. I'm like, get the names right. And so Joseph interrupts. Jacob has crossed his arms to bless all the wrong sons. And, and, oh well, he's quite old. And so Joseph just needs to help him along, he thinks. But Jacob knows. His is a mature faith that recognizes that God's ways are not man's ways. Manasseh joins the long list of firstborn in Genesis who are passed over for their younger brother. Cain, Ishmael, Esau, Zerah, and Reuben. Four generations in a row now of the Abrahamic blessing has gone to the younger son. And so in verse 19, I know my son. I know, replies Jacob. Jacob knows that this strangely assigned blessing is not his to decide. Remember, Jacob watched his own father attempt to bless the traditional firstborn son. And he also watched the way in which God, in his sovereignty, overrode all of Isaac's attempts to bless his firstborn. Faith recognizes that God's ways are not man's ways, and God's thoughts are not man's thoughts. Blind Jacob has been granted the discernment into the will of God to bless the younger over the older, despite all human tradition and the conflict that it had brought about in his own life. It had taken Jacob a lifetime to learn this fact, but he did finally learn it. And so now he deliberately blessed the younger over the elder. So, like I said, we see a wise Jacob now through these final passages. One who acts according to the revealed plan and purpose of God. One who finally trusts the promise of God. Before this, we could only have said that Jacob had had a wise son. Now here, the student is the master, or the master became the student and now has become the master again. Joseph was wise, and now Jacob is wise, his father. And now Joseph needs the wisdom of Jacob. It's at this point, at this point we've seen repeatedly throughout Genesis, God's selection of the younger brother is representative of the fact that his choice is not according to human reason, merit, or claims of birth order or social order. He does not, Genesis 49.3, prefer the mighty and the strong or the dignified and powerful. 
God in Christ creates for himself sons and daughters, heirs according to the promise, Luke 7.22, from a band of lame, blind, poor, and lepers. Paul writes 1 Corinthians 1.26-29, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The careful selection of the younger throughout Genesis and the teaching throughout Scripture that God chooses those who will be saved, is meant to bring us to this place of humility and trust. If you belong to God this morning, know it is because God has chosen what is foolish, what is weak, what is nothing, so that no one can boast in anything other than God. God chose, later will choose Moses, who has a speech impediment, to speak on his behalf to Israel. His humbling thought. Unlike Ishmael and Esau, Manasseh is not rejected. He's only relegated to the position of second-born son to make God's point. None of Israel's sons will be lost. God had promised Abraham and Isaac descendants, but he promises Jacob that this whole family will come into the land and this whole family will leave the land. And so the promise is now for this entire Israelite tribe. And so Manasseh, where Esau uh, was passed over and did not become part of God's people, where Ishmael was passed over and did not become part of God's people, Manasseh is just the second-born son. He still gets a great blessing. He, He also, verse 19, would become a people, and be great, only he would be overshadowed by Ephraim's fruitful descendants to make God's point. So both tribes would be so numerous that God would make them a catchphrase for prosperity. So that when you wanted to wish blessing on someone in Israel, they would say, verse 20, may God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. We have two such blessings in the last few chapters of Genesis. May God make you fruitful like Tamar. May God bless you as he did Ephraim and Manasseh. Hands crossed upon these sons with preference given to the second born, verse 15 to 16, Jacob blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Every generation in this family has had to depend on God's promise. But Jacob, more than any other, has relied on the promise during his life of conflict. Jacob's years were short and difficult, or short and evil, he says. But he has found that the promise will not fail. The first half of this blessing is actually a a testimony covering three generations, providing a a crowning summary of all their ancestral faith, completely and entirely focused on God. The blessing 
is God. He has made for himself a people, Leviticus 26.12, and has chosen to be their God. And this, is, this is such an exciting blessing in Genesis because the blessing isn't just to be fruitful and multiply. The blessing is God who would be with them. Psalm 103, 1-5 reads, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle." The one who is the subject of this sacrament of hope is the one who has been with and for this family and has never been found wanting. And so Jacob blesses his new sons with the relationship that God has chosen with them. There's no new promises found here. The the promise is as old as humanity. The sons of Joseph will be fruitful and multiply. Now, the way this worked out is later during the division of Israel, Ephraim's descendants would become the most powerful and numerous of all the northern tribes. So Judah became the great tribe and Ephraim became the other great tribe. Uh, So great to the extent that sometimes the northern ten tribes would altogether be referred to as Ephraim. And so you would talk about Israel and Judah, or sometimes you'd speak of Ephraim and Judah were the two divisions of Israel. While Ephraim and Manasseh became the prominent tribes of the north, the tribes of Reuben and Simeon will all but disappear. The final two verses of this chapter again reiterate the theme of double blessing to Joseph. Genesis 48, 21 to 22. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, there's no record in Genesis of Jacob fighting anyone except for God. And this will make sense, but we just have to think about that. As Jacob's primary heir, Joseph is granted the birthright in Reuben's stead, um, and you can find this in First Chronicles 5.1, that Reuben was passed over and Joseph received his birthright. And this birthright included a double portion. And so when the inheritance was passed out, the firstborn son, by law, received double what his other brothers received as an inheritance. And so this double portion for Joseph includes a second tribe, Uh, So there's two tribes of Joseph and one for the rest of his brothers. Now here there's a second portion of the promised land. And so while there will be two tribes to Joseph, there will also be double the land given to him in Canaan. Now there's significant wordplay here in the Hebrew, which I think is hilarious, and maybe you'll just think that this is boring, but I think it's so funny, so humor me. (laughs) This wordplay results in lots of different translations, uh, using various methods to render it into English. Because the term translated in, in our English Standard Version as a mountain slope is actually the Hebrew word for shoulder. And so it says, 
Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one shoulder that I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. But the word shoulder in Hebrew in the right context also means portion. So if he says, I gave you an extra shoulder, it, could, it should mean I gave you an extra portion. But if you're speaking about land, shoulder means a mountain ridge. So if you say I gave you a shoulder of land, it means I gave you a mountain ridge. So they're all proper translations. No one's done a bad job. It just means a lot of different things. So Joseph here gives, or so Jacob gives Joseph one more shoulder than his brothers, which would mean an extra portion, which is exactly what is expected here in the context. He's given him a double portion. It's exactly the context. But the extra shoulder is also a piece of land, and so it could be translated one mountain slope as we have it here in our translation. It gets really funny, though, when you understand that the Hebrew word for shoulder is Shechem. And if you've been following with us in Genesis, this is the city which Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, had attacked in Genesis 34, killed all the males, took all the women and children, plundered the city. And the, the area, that land area, was called Shechem. And so Jacob says, I have given, granted you one Shechem, that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now, Jacob had denounced the raid of Simeon and Levi against the city. And as the second and third eldest brothers, they too are being passed over to give the birthright of the firstborn to Joseph because of their cruel violence. But despite Jacob's condemnation of the overreaction of his violent and cruel sons, he accepts the reality that he conquered and took a city in Canaan. And so now he grants the area to Joseph as the one place in Canaan that the conquest of Israel had already begun. This was the one place where the Canaanites had already been wiped out. And so Joseph grants an inheritance to Joseph, the only place in Canaan that has been cleared out. My plan is to come back to this statement when we discuss a related theme next week. But for now, we should understand that Joseph gets one more shoulder than his brothers, a double portion, the area of Shechem, which could have conceivably also included a mountain slope. In this chapter, we see that because of a lifetime of witnessing the faithfulness of God, Jacob can trust the promise maker. Now, this has been the theme all the way through Genesis. If you've been with us, this keeps on happening over and over again. Why do we need such a long book to describe this? Because we are so desperately foolish, so bad at remembering, and God is gracious to us and continues to remind us he is faithful. How many of us this morning have sinned in anxiety and worry this week? We need this remembrance daily. I am so happy I can bring this to our remembrance on a weekly basis, but you need this on a daily basis. Bring it to your remembrance, what God has done, that he can be trusted. It changes the way we live our lives. And so Jacob's final actions, these two final actions that will be repeated in the next chapter to come, are grounded in God's promises. Jacob's burial is set to anticipate the fulfillment of God's promises. He prepares himself to receive what God has promised, even though he knows his life has come to an end. He also grants an inheritance to his children. But these blessings will not be found in Egypt. 
or even during their lifetimes. He sets his sons on a trajectory to entrust themselves to God's promise, to see themselves receiving it according to the faithfulness of God. And so at the very end of Genesis, we will see Joseph arrange to have his bones carried to the promised land as well. These remarkable descriptions reveal Jacob's faith, one that we saw through his life did not exist, one that had matured through the years and that had learned to trust the Lord in the difficulties of his life. And so there's little wonder that the writer to the Hebrews would select this event as the epitome of Jacob's faith, for it presents one of the finest examples in Scripture of mature faith. And it gives me great hope because Jacob's a loser at the start of the story. And God takes what is weak, what is foolish, what is rebellious, what is haughty, and he brings us to humility and trust his goodness to us, nothing that we've done for ourselves. And so the author of Hebrews uses this example, Hebrews eleven twenty one. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. I just want to pray. God, I pray that you would grant this blessing to us this morning through the reading of your word and through the application your Holy Spirit brings to it, that you would show us your faithfulness that we would celebrate your faithfulness. We would rejoice in your faithfulness this morning. Let us walk in your way, not because we have forced ourselves to it, not because of who we are, but because of your goodness expressed to us. Transform our hearts, soften our hearts, that we would see your goodness and trust in you. even as Jacob entrusted himself to you in death and entrusted the future of his children, may we entrust ourselves to you. Sanctify us in your truth, we pray, for the glory of Christ Jesus. Amen.